0: There's a story about a proud man, a proud young man who came to Socrates asking for knowledge. He walked up to the muscular philosopher and said, oh great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. Socrates recognized a pompous numbskull when he saw one. He led the young man through the streets to the sea and chest deep into the water. Then he asked, What is it you want? Knowledge, O oh, wise Socrates, said the young man with a smile. Socrates put his strong hands on the man's shoulders and pushed him under. Thirty seconds later, Socrates led him up. What is it you want? He asked again. Wisdom. The young man sputtered, O oh, great and wise Socrates. Socrates crunched him under again. Thirty seconds passed, thirty five, forty. Socrates led him up. The man was gasping. What does he want, young man? Between heavy, heaving breaths, the fellow wheezed knowledge, oh, wise and wonderful. Socrates jammed him under again. Forty seconds passed, 50. What does he want? Air, the young man screeched. I need air. He says, when you want knowledge as, if you, as, as you had just wanted air, then you will have knowledge there is an interesting truth there. What it is we want of God, sometimes we just don't simply ask. We have to want it, and we have to cooperate with him, and we have to work. Not work for his love or his approval or his forgiveness, but work. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling to, to put in the effort, to put in the time, I like watching the movie Miracle. I watch it often. I watch a lot of motivational, wholesome movies often. The coach of the the team that won the gold medal, beat the Russians, US team, says, no one has worked hard enough to beat the Russians. We will, he says, and they did. It's not just wanting something. It's demonstrating that want by not being satisfied in the least bit without it. Many people think they know what they want and they're driven by it. Few are aware of what they need. We know what we want, but not all of us are truly aware of what it is we really need. And to be honest with you, if we did, we'd take it or leave it. But then there's another place we can get to. Far fewer ever get to the point of desperation for wanting something. God has incredible things for you and I. And I wonder if sometimes he reads our desperation level as whether we're really grateful for having it or not, if we're really gonna use it or not. What are you desperate for in your walk? So we sing a song, I want a closer walk with thee. But if there was something of a necessity to have that closer walk, would we, in fact, be desperate for it? Are we desperate for the things that would give us that closer walk? It's different than being desperate for a closer walk. Let's be desperate for the things that would manifest itself in a closer walk. Now, that's different. You want a closer relationship with your wife. You want a closer relationship with your husband. But are you willing to do the work and the very things that would facilitate that nearness. See, that's a different thing altogether. We have the tools, we have everything at our disposal, but are we willing to implement those tools? Are we willing to use them, put them into action? Knowledge without action isn't really much. The accumulation of knowledge, even the accumulation of wisdom, a lot of people think wisdom is is wisdom when it's really not. Wisdom really isn't wisdom until it's applied. We're not looking for cliches and cute sayings. We're looking for the application of truth. I wanna talk to you about that today. Occasionally, we'll have to walk barefoot through broken glass to get something that God wants us to have. And he's not just gonna spoil us by giving us everything without any kind of cost whatsoever. Sometimes we've gotta work with him. Because once we have it, we're gonna do something with it far greater than if it was just casually handed to us. You've raised children, you know what I'm talking about. See, the Christian faith can just not, it can't simply be a matter of the heart. The heart is so important, but it can't just be the heart, and it certainly can't be our feelings. We can't, we can't look at our walk and our faith and our life and evaluate its success or failure based on feelings, my goodness, that would be terrible. If we're emotionally volatile, we're we're making Christ look look, look to be sort of like volatile himself. No, it's not just feelings and it's just not faith and the heart. It's not certainly not just sentimentality. <laughs> There was a guy, uh, there was a guy, a friend of mine, I know him, I love the guy. He's one of the most magnanimous people I've ever met. He came to my office one day just to visit the area and a bobcat walked out behind my office past the window. Pretty good sized bobcat. Well, he wasn't familiar with that, he's from Atlanta. So he looked out the window, he saw a bobcat, immediately to him, that was a sign he needed to buy a house here. I I mean, I couldn't really, I don't know. I couldn't really see that, but okay. Uh, It's more than that. There's this walk that we have where we're, just like your spouse, you're used to hearing the way they talk and the rhythm of how they talk. And eventually, I'm not there yet. Believe me, I'm not there yet. Where you finish one another's sentences That's close. And sometimes I think the Christian, the Christian life in this particular season, in this particular culture is more about sentimentality and feelings, getting caught up in movements and trends and momentum, culturally generated, and placing a bit of a naive spirit on trusting certain people to lead us and convince us and inform us when they have no grounds to do so. If anything, they're charlatans. So the Christian walk is, is, is all of the things we've talked about. It's about discernment, it's also about wisdom. Sometimes we have too many voices in our life, too many mediators between us and God And we welcome them, we invite them, we search them out. We we look for sources of people that can tell us about God and how to get closer to God, when in reality, Christ died for an immediate mediatorship between you and the Father. A a personal immediate mediating that takes place, a, a direct contact, a direct communication where you don't have to rely on everybody out there to sync up and tell you what you want to hear. And not everybody that tells you God said, God actually said. You do know that, right? You know that. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ Jesus. It's always good to confirm and have people speak into your life, but come on. Again, I'll say it. We don't seek out answers. We seek out the one with the answer. We don't seek direction, we seek the one with the direction. We don't seek wisdom, we seek he who is the embodiment and manifestation of wisdom. Don't get those things confused. 1 Corinthians 2 and 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When you think, you're a believer who thinks and a thinker who believes. When you think with the mind of Christ, you solve problems. You come up with innovative solutions. You see God for who he is. You think in accordance with the word. And this is where it comes to play now, my friend. There's some work that has to be done. I'm, as I told you last week, I'm starting my walk over. I'm going back to basics. I'm going back to boot camp. I'm going back to understanding how to think with the mind of Christ. I'm going back to scripture memory. Let me say that again. I'm going back to scripture memory. I mentioned that to people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. I hear it too often now. I just had a senior moment. I was walking from one room to another and I forgot why I walked in here. I can't memorize anything. I can't remember anything. Well, that may be your confession. But let me say something about your mind. Use it or lose it. Whatever happened to putting the work in, to take the word of God and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him, that it would be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, that it would dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, I wonder how much of our memory loss is attributed to filling our mind with things that aren't worth remembering. And there's an absence of the input of things that never return void truth. Maybe it's not such a physiological phenomenon, maybe it's more of a spiritual phenomenon. Is it possible that the inspired Word of God canonized in 397 in North Africa in Carthage, after decades upon decades upon decades of validation and confirmation, of scrutiny, of fact-finding, of eyewitness testimony, that stands up even today to the apologetic defense of truth, that the greatest teacher that ever lived, that ever walked, that ever spoke, may have had something to say that if we had planted in our mind may actually help us remember something else. You see what I'm saying? You gotta do the work. I wanna know the word. What do you think this is? Some sort of download? Is there some kind of SIM card you go over at the church bookstore and pick up? Do you get it at Dalton over there in Franklin? No. You gotta dig and you gotta mind and you gotta remember and you gotta rehearse and you gotta share. And you don't do it for cognitive cognitive escalation. Sometimes you do it for personal de-escalation, greater humility, greater insight, greater wisdom. You gotta do the work. No excuse. There's no excuses. Sorry, I have no excuses, nor do you. You are what you eat. And if you eat the word of God, you're more like Christ. In In fact, Christ lives through you. Here's a word, intimacy. Speak his language, speak his word. You won't have to ask so many people what it is you need to do because you'll know that what you need to do is in accordance with his word that's already in your heart. Sometimes you don't need confirmation. Sometimes you don't need to pray about something. You know, Solomon didn't labor day after day after day as to what to do with that two women, those two harlots that had a baby. He had the wisdom already in him. He gave the counsel they needed. and saved the baby's life. No one's worked hard enough to beat the Russians. We will. If your faith, your walk, your closer walk with Jesus is expected to come about effortlessly, it may not be as close as you want it to be. It's just like anything else in life. You gotta put in the time. You want a good relationship? Put in the time. You want a good relationship? Listen. You want a good relationship? Speak your mind, speak your heart. Speak each other's language. Then you'll have the mind of Christ. I'm not only going back to the beginning of my walk. I'm gonna, I got a do-over. I love that I serve and you worship and I worship the God of the do-over. Put in some work. I think we we got so caught up in grace and mercy at the expense of doing good works. We got so afraid we're doing this to win approval. I did my dad's funeral yesterday. And I realized a monumental thing in my life, I realized. My sister said it, my brother knew it, my mom knows it. My dad was so proud of his family He had a deep, deep, deep abiding sense of satisfaction with his children and where they were and what they were doing with their lives. He did. But you know what? We never had a relationship with him where I wanted him to be proud of me out of my own personal deficiency and need for his approval. It wasn't that at all. It was that I lived my life and I take, I take great joy in remembering the fact that my father was proud of me. But it wasn't a codependent, oh my gosh, I've got to do something before he dies so he loves me thing. He loved me either way. Now, our father in heaven is the same way. He's proud of you. And you don't, you don't have to do anything to make him love you. In fact, there's not a whole lot you could do to make him stop loving you, because he is love. It's kind of what he does. It's who he is. It's not what he does. It's who he is. So you're not memorizing verses or pressing in in prayer so that you can score points with the divine. Heavens, no. That's an affront. But you can take joy. This is it right here. You can take joy in knowing. He enjoys your pursuit of him. There it is, there it is. Don't do something so God can approve of you and bless you and forgive you and give you things. Enjoy the joy of knowing that he is attentive to you and he is enjoying you pursuing him. There it is. I wanna get back to that. Proverbs 9, one through six. Wisdom has built her house. Wisdom is always personified in the Bible as a woman. Can I get an amen, ladies? (laughs) And I'm not sucking up to ladies because I did the thing with the (laughs) retreat. Jill, I'm not. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Wow. Some of you have big living rooms with big beams and hewn logs. That's what wisdom. Wisdom's done that. Wisdom's gone to the trouble of hewning out those logs and putting those logs in place in the home to shore up the home and make it stable, structural, give it rigidity, make it a safe place. That's what wisdom's done. Seven pillars. Wisdom is expressed in words, but truly defined when expressed in deeds. The lack of wisdom actually is not the lack of knowledge, but rather the absence of applied knowledge. Wisdom is the application of the right knowledge. It is also a prompting in an individual enabling him to make good decisions and right choices. It's been said here in this congregation before that the world right now is incredibly confused. Can't, there's a wisdom of this world, there's a wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world has left us confused, fractured, segregated, divided, alienated from one another, experimenting with this, this approach, that approach, condoning this approach, condemning that approach, confused, and God's not the author of confusion. And there is the absence, and this goes into the church. Let's bring part of the church into the equation too. There is some confusion in the church. We're confused about what a marriage is. We're confused about a lot of things. Some churches aren't confused at all. This happens to be one of them. But here's the thing. Like in the absence of the word, we come up with these weird scenarios, these weird ideologies, these weird philosophies, these craziness to where we all look like nobody really knows what they're doing. That's why you have that book in your lap. But that book in your lap has to be in your mind, and it has to be in your mind long enough you can get it into your heart. I have written your word on my heart. Woo, now we're dangerous at that point. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out seven pillars. Where do you go in an earthquake? You stand in a doorway, Under a double header above the door. Culturally speaking, the world has a broken pillar, and a broken pillar will lead to death and mortality. God is known as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day, a fire by night, a pillar of cloud. He's in a manifested presence, and He's there and accessible and visible, and, and, and He's there wanting to help you run your business. He's there wanting to make decisions and to be a wise man and a wise woman. To hold your life up. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt. She didn't quite care what God had to say. James 3 and 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, he says, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I wanna change the way that I pastor because I don't see anybody else doing it this way, but I think in this particular culture, with the time availability of people, with the, the hunger that exists in the body of Christ or the lack thereof or the abundance thereof, there, there's a certain way to go about things. You can't really disciple people anymore in a congregation because the congregation, regardless of whether you beg, steal, or borrow, does, isn't going to afford you the time to do it. Uh, unless you're in a small group. And even then, that's sketchy. Let's be honest. To to actually disciple somebody, you need time. To build a relationship, you need time. You need accessibility. You need openness, vulnerability, transparency. You need wisdom. You need the word. You need the presence. You need a lot of things. Well, this all started in my 25 years of walking with Christ. 35, whatever it is. Here it is. We used to have Sunday night, we don't have Sunday night anymore. We used to have Wednesday night, we don't have Wednesday night anymore. We don't have Sunday morning, we have Sunday morning, but some people don't even have Sunday morning. So culturally speaking, we're fading from the time together with one another. And when you have time together with one another, you have friction, which helps us grow because we have to resolve that. Or we have togetherness and koinonia and encouragement and love and understanding and teaching and mentoring and all of those things. So I'm gonna come in the middle with an approach going forward to where we, me and other teachers in this church are going to to provide what we call intensives. One day investments in a specific topic is gonna help you build your faith. It's gonna help you. Little time investment, high yield. We're gonna make them plentiful, available, different times, different... We're gonna do it at the farm. We're gonna have opportunities for people to grow with precision because the time availability just isn't there. We're gonna impart wisdom. We're gonna talk, talk about life, application of truth. We're gonna talk about wisdom as pure and peaceable and gentle and considerate. We're gonna talk about how to understand fallacies and an argument, how to think logically and with reason, how to defend your faith apologetically. How to to give a reason for why you believe. We're gonna talk about things like how to share your faith in ways that no one's ever thought of before. How to pierce a person's heart with truth. How to encourage somebody to receive the love of Christ. How to see people for where they're really at, not what they're like on the outside. We're gonna do some things going forward in a different way. My job is going to change, and I'm gonna go back to the basics of the fundamentals of showing you on a small group level how to really make a difference in people's lives and in your own family. Well, she has these seven pillars, and she's slaughtered her meat. This'll be an interesting question. Raise your hand if you've ever dressed a deer. I raised my hand, but I never have. I might get my brother to do it. (laughs) Or I get my son to do it. It's good, you have to go to a lot of trouble. Wisdom goes to a lot of trouble to prepare a meal. And she's mixed her wine, the writer of Proverbs says, Solomon. You see, back in the day, I know a lot of you like the fact that they drink a lot of wine in the Bible. (laughs) And you imitate that. But one, one caveat I just want to make clear. Um, they mixed their wine. They put spices in it to make it tasty because they needed the spices because they had a, a three to two or a three to five ratio of water added in. Sorry about that. Y'all thought you're behaving. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, they would dilute their wine so they wouldn't, you know, lead to drunkenness. But anyway, whatever the case may be, what the point here is that wisdom prepared and went to great lengths to provide something really worth partaking of. And she arranged her table, it says in Proverbs. She went to the trouble of making things look right with excellence and presented things well. And then she sent out her maidens Well, it's kind of an allusion to the disciples and apostles going out with the message of the gospel around the world, Mark 16 and 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And she cries out from the highest places of the city, whoever is simple, let them turn in here. And for who lacks wisdom, she says to him, come eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed, forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. There's a Christian walk that's needed in the world today. And, and it can ill afford to be sentimental, feeling-oriented only, simply about passion without logic and reason. It has to be intelligent, well-informed, a defender of the truth. It has to be piercing, thought-provoking. It has to be things that it has to... Uh, bring pregnant questions to the table. It has to get people to think and to ponder and to meditate. It has to come out of a place of depth because a shallow world does not need a shallow answer. I know we want seeker friendly churches that are a, 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 an inch deep and a mile wide. Well, we found out that didn't work. What we need is depth. Of understanding, depth of love, depth of passion, depth of insight, depth of strategy, depth of meaning, depth of impact, depth of a testimony. We need to be able to live our lives at a level deeper that is far more deeper than the superficial, confusing, shallow world in which we live in. That's bemused by entertainment and sound bites and is getting us nowhere. So did you come to church today because why, you know, why? On some level, it has to be deeper. It has to get down here in the belly. It has to be visceral, I'm sorry. You have to do the work. You have to have the time. You have to help one another. Look at the Bible and read ahead at what's coming. Massive, massive deception more charlatans and con artists, more people asking for money, more people playing to people's carnality. It's just never ending. More people with lies and deceit. More false miracles are coming. I got a a follow up the other day. We had laid hands on this little girl and she stopped having seizures. She was having them all the time. And her mother is now coming off of the dialysis, slowly. She's being healed. We've seen, we've seen people healed in this church. And, I, and I'm careful to keep it under the radar. Because I'll tell you what, under the radar is where God likes to operate. Read the New Testament. Don't be showy about things, but testify to what God is doing. You see, not everything we do in our faith, we ought to be able to cognitively process and understand. There ought to be a peace that comes on you throughout the week that transcends all understanding. So there's a place for logic and reason. There's a place for knowing how to disregard people's arguments and fallacies and deceit and pleas for money and false teaching and theology and garbage. There's plenty of it out there. But there's also a time for your mind to be blown by the immediate intervention of a hole in a throat that disappears. It's confirmed by medical science. The rash disappears one day. It was there for years previously. There's there's all kind of accounts that have happened here that that are beyond our ability to cognitively understand them. And it just comes with a child, simple childlike faith, and a bunch of love, and more love than faith. But then there's this aspect of Christianity that that begs us to do the work. Do your homework. Do your homework. When you do a devotion in the morning, do it with someone else in mind too. Know how to take facts and evidence and explain to another person the historicity of the the actual presence of Christ on this earth. Come to me with Israel, with my wife, and walk the same steps he walked on. Stand next to the same retaining wall the temple he preached at. Look at the southern steps where he taught people things. Go to the Pool of Bethesda where he healed that man in John chapter five. Walk on the Sea of Galilee where he was reinstated with Peter. Go to Caesarea by the sea. And look where Paul was in prison. All of these places, this isn't the Book of Mormon, this actually happened in a time, in a place, in a river, in a mountain, with, with currency, with tools, with customs, with buildings, with architecture, with valleys and flowers and fauna and animals. This all happened. We're not here, I'm not up here basing and staking every iota of my life on some false fantasy. This is a Christ who does things even among his people. He heals, he restores, he forgives, he redeems. And if for any second of your life, you feel as though you know more than he does, he's omniscient. He doesn't look at the sun, moon, and the stars for direction. He placed them there. He's he's all-knowing. He's all-sufficient. And he loves you. But if you do disagree with him, then continue to disagree with him. Verbalize it. Speak to him. Argue with him. Insult him if you want. He's heard it all. And he'll not return in kind. He'll reveal himself to you in a manner you never thought possible. He's been through all of that. Get mad at him. Ask him questions. Ask him why you were traumatized. Why did he allow things to happen in your life? Where was he when you needed him? Ask him these things. Don't cut off communication. You'll get answers. You'll get restored. You'll be redeemed. You'll be empowered. You'll be called. You'll be gifted. You'll walk in wisdom. There's nothing that you have experienced in your own life that is painful and traumatic, abusive, or hurting, or grieving, or a loss that he hasn't already experienced for knowing your need to relate to him and him to be your substitute to die on a cross. And if you've ever done anything against him, however grievous, however many times you blasphemed him and cursed his name and mocked him and mocked people who followed him, that's okay too. They were literally slicing him open with a spear and before that he said, forgive them father, they know what they do. You can't get that grievous with him that you would push him away. He's incredible. He's brilliant. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He's soft. He's tender. He's firm. He's authoritative. He's all that we need him to be. And the greatest thing I like about him is that he's sacrificial. Very few people in this room probably really, truly know what it truly means to sacrifice. I'm very careful how I use that word in my own life. I in no way, shape, or form want to be seen as one who thinks he's sacrificial, especially as I pour this into the cup of the covenant for the forgiveness of my sin. That sacrifice. Unwarranted penalty. Love shed abroad in his heart to pay a ransom to release you and I from the darkness of our own fallenness. Tough to beat that. In fact, it's unbeatable. If the communicus would come forward, let's prepare to come and take the Eucharist together, shall we? Adjacent to the section in which you're seating, sitting right now, you'll see someone holding a plate and someone holding a cup. Approach them. I would suggest soberly and humbly Take the wafer which is the body is the body of Christ, and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ. You may think you're whole today, or you may think you're broken, and you're probably both, but you're not near as broken as he was, on your behalf. And you're never going to be more whole. Than when you embrace his brokenness on your behalf, divinity shed his blood. The life is in the blood. It says in Leviticus twenty-three. The power is in the blood. It's the blood that sanctifies you, cleanses you, makes you holy. It covers you and protects you. It keeps you from what you really deserve. Trust me, you don't want what you deserve and nor do I. Enter the grace of God, the friendship of God, the unmerited favor of God. Be comfortable receiving that which you have not earned and get used to it if it's new to you. I have a friend that's here today who told me a quick story I want to share it with you. He's encouraging me to go see a doctor in Augusta. And he's telling me that as he enters the doctor's office, they summon him back to a room to meet with the doctor. He's given the directions to leave the waiting room and go directly down the hall and sit under Jesus, and the doctor will come and see you looks around the corner and looks down the hall and sure enough on the wall is a picture of Jesus and he sits under it. Well, there it is. Your remedy, your healing, your restoration, the great physician is waiting for you. It certainly doesn't help if you sit under his authority and you sit at the foot of the cross. Here's a little Bible study for you. Study everything that happens at the foot of Jesus and you'll get pictures of how to live your life. It's marvelous. So this communion is open to all believers. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to him. He said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. He so said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Trust me, we need forgiveness more than we need anything else. And the forgiveness is entree to every other prov- provision. He looked at the paralytic who couldn't walk and saw that his greatest need was not walking, but the forgiveness of his sin. Enjoy the lightness of of the innocence, the absence of a weightiness and guilt and shame after you take this blood and put it in your mouth. Your sins are forgiven. Never lose touch of the weight of that statement. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.